Here we are again. Grace Presbyterian Church, we are continuing through our series on the Kings this summer, and we find ourselves in 1 Kings 13, verses 1 through 6. To add some brief context, last week we saw Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, acting harshly with the ten tribes of Israel whom his father had brought into servitude for his large construction projects, basically enslaving them. And the result of that was a split in the kingdom. So now we have King Jeroboam, a king over Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, and we have King Rehoboam, the, the line of David over the tribe of Judah, which now has absorbed the, king, the uh, tribe of Benjamin. No big deal. It's, it's just a thing. Um, so anyway, we find ourselves here looking at the first king of Israel, King Jeroboam, and we find him here in 1 Kings 13, again, verses 1 through 6. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Please follow along with me as I read. <clears throat> and behold, excuse me. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. <clears throat> and he gave a sign, <clears throat> excuse me, the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! <clears throat> and his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. <clears throat> the altar was also torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign of the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come to you in this time of unrest in our country, unrest in in this world, danger lurks all around, and yet we here come to praise you and worship you and hear from your word. I pray that I don't stand in the way of that today. I pray that you would teach your people what you would have them learn from your scriptures this day. We pray these things in the very word of God, the name of Jesus, amen. We're going to start today with a question, with a question. You're going to have to respond where you are. I can't hear you because it's through the internet, but here's the question we're going to start with. What is the world's biggest problem? I'll give you time to think about it. What's the world's biggest problem? What is it? Uh, while you're thinking, let me just throw out some options, okay? First of all, we, we see in our nation certainly that racism is a big problem. Is it the biggest one? It, it might be. It might be. Uh, certainly our economy has seen better days. Now, it's definitely not the worst it's been, but it's very far from the golden age of America 
unemployment's through the roof. Small businesses are closing. Oh, and right, there's this uh, mysterious virus floating around. Um, and so uh, that's a thing that we have to deal with. But listen, depending on the problem that we diagnose, whatever our, our evaluation of the essential problem or the biggest problem that we face, it will uh, precipitate any number of different solutions. So depending on the diagnosis of the problem, we will then identify a solution to that thing. Okay? Uh, in, in the beginning of his uh, leadership over the nation of Israel, King Jeroboam was going through a similar thought process. He was ruminating on what was his biggest problem. And so if we rewind from this passage to 1 Kings 12, here is where he, he names his, his biggest problem, he diagnoses it, and then he comes up with a solution for it. So let's take a look. 1 Kings 12, 25-28. So, and Jeroboam said in his heart, so he's thinking, he's thinking deeply, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to the king of Judah, Rehoboam. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So what was the problem that he diagnosed? What was the problem that he pinpointed? It was uh, the fact that God had commanded His people to worship Him in one place. That was the temple that Solomon built. And that, that temple just so happened to exist in the territory of the rival king, Rehoboam. So his thinking is this. If my people keep going back to worship in the way that God commanded them, they have to keep going back to this nation, the nation of Judah. And if they continue to do that, the, the power that I hold now, the place of my throne is threatened. So, what's his problem? He might lose his power. Here's his solution. Are you ready for this? This is great. So the king took counsel, and here's what he did. This should sound very familiar. <clears throat> he made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of of Egypt. What was his solution? Start a cult. <laughs> Start a false religion. He went straight to the playbook of Aaron, the brother of Moses. He quotes him here. He does exactly what Aaron did at the base of Mount Sinai while they waited for Moses to return. He makes two bowls, golden bowls, and he raises them up as the new gods of his nation, Israel. That's what he does. That's his, he diagnosed the problem. He came up with a solution to that problem. He wants to he wants to protect the power of his throne. Now, this story that we just read from 1 Kings 13 is, is one of several stories. They happen in quick succession. It's kind of a moving at a frantic pace. And each story is designed to say this. Obey the Word of God. That is the meaning of those stories. Obey the Word of God. And so this is where we begin to evaluate King Jeroboam's diagnosis. What was the word of God to Jeroboam? When he first anointed Jeroboam as king, when he first called him and said, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from Rehoboam, I'm going to give you the, the throne of Israel, what did he say? He said this, God to Jeroboam through a prophet, if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did. I will be with you 
and you will and I will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you was in fact the throne of Jeroboam being threatened by King Rehoboam no it wasn't he misdiagnosed the problem he misdiagnosed the problem god said if you simply obey my word you will not have to worry about losing your throne And yet, in these stories, what's happening? Jeroboam is concerned with the wrong problem, and therefore he writes the wrong solution. And so that's where we find Jeroboam at the beginning of 1 Kings 13. He's leading this silly false religion. If you look at the passage just before this one, at the end of 1 Kings 12, the the author is recounting how Jeroboam created or made this false religion, and he uses the word that uh, translates to English, and he made over and over and over again. And he made the idols, and he made this, and he made the altars, and he made this, and he made priests. And the idea is, you think, well, he's being awfully repetitious. What he's getting at is this. The word there is like doing a craft project. (laughs) And so he wants you to feel the silliness of what Jeroboam has done. The silliness of Jeroboam worshiping something he's made with his own mind and hands as if it made him as if it deserves his worship. And so we see here in verse 1, the man of God comes from Judah to confront Jeroboam. And here we have Jeroboam, Jeroboam standing by the altar to make offerings to his silly, false gods. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis has written a fantastic commentary on First and Second Kings. If you want a more in-depth look, it's very uh, accessible. I recommend you pick it up. But what he says about this moment where the, the, the prophet barges in on worship of these false idols is that God loves to barge in on our idolatry. God loves to confront us in our idolatry. And that's exactly what he's doing here with Jeroboam and this false religion. And so there's three ways that God confronts Jeroboam. Let me run through these rather quickly. First of all, in verse 2, God confronts this false religion, this idolatry, with the truth. And so we see in verse 2, the man cried against the altar by the word of the God, saying, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And what happens, he's referring here to 2 Kings 22. I'll preach on this later in the, in the summer. The, the, the reforms of Josiah, Josiah is born and he is faithful to God. They uncover the book of the law in the temple. They find it. It's been lost for, for many, many years. And what does he do? He rends his clothes and he brings the people back to God. What God is saying in this message to the prophet is, this is a wrong thing and God will eventually make it right. This false worship is wrong. God is confronting Jeroboam and this false religion with the truth. What I would like to highlight here, and it's just interesting for a point of application, who or what is God confronting? Who or what is the prophet confronting? Is he confronting Jeroboam? No, he is, he is talking a little crazily to the altar itself. Oh, altar, altar. He cried against the altar. And look in verse 4, the king heard him saying these things, what? Against the altar. God is not confronting Jeroboam personally. He's confronting this idolatry. And what I want us to take note of here is the response of Jeroboam. In the end of verse or middle of verse 4, what does he say? He hears him insulting the altar and he says, seize him! Like any good kingly arrest him language, he says, seize him. Okay? His response to this man insulting and calling out the idolatry and the false religion is anger. Anger. 
the point I'm, I think can be made here is that when we have idolatries, when we have lifted up something and worship it in a false, falsely religious way, we begin to love them dearly. We, we defend them. We, when, when we are called out on them, what do we do? We parry and we counter. We lash out at times. In fact, I bet someone right now just now said, no, I don't, and everyone in the living room is looking at you like you're a weirdo because you, you're realizing, oh my goodness, that when I have idolatries, I love them and I lash out when anyone tries to assail them, when anyone, anyone tries to call me out on those idolatries. The application here is this. If there is something in your life, if there is something in your life you absolutely refuse to give up, whether that thing can be good or bad or blatantly sinful, you have to examine whether or not that thing has become an idol or not. If it has nothing to do with God or has nothing to do with your personal walk with Christ and you refuse to give it up, there's a good chance it has put its claws in you as an idol. It's a non-negotiable at this point in your life when it becomes an idol. Now God confronts with the truth, and so he says this thing you're doing is wrong and I will undo it. He also confronts with signs. Look at verses 3-5. through five. And so uh, he said he gave, us, he gave a sign that same day saying, this is the sign of the Lord. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. In verse 5, what happens? The altar is torn down and the ashes pour out. So, what happens? He, God physically, supernaturally breaks the altar down. The other thing that happens is the seizing of the arm. This is great. This is why the Old Testament is so fascinating. We have stories like this. And it goes like this. He says, seize him, and he points his finger out. You ready? Seize him. Or maybe it's like this. Who knows? I'm going to go ahead and assume it was a point, finger pointing. Seize him. And what happens? His stretched out arm dried up. It could not be brought back. So here's Jeroboam. He's got this weird uh, uh, dried up pointing arm curse situation. No big deal. Okay, He's stuck like this. He cannot put his arm down. God has, in, in his demand to seize the prophet, God has seized this part of his body. And I'm holding this up here. It's starting to burn a little bit. It's probably good for my muscles. Um, and so what happens? We learn about Jeroboam that he is, he is a very cool under pressure. His arm is stuck. Altars are exploding supernaturally all around him. And what happens? He says this in verse 6. Entreat now the favor of your Lord. He asks the prophet to pray for his arm to be healed. And what does a prophet do? He, he prays and it's healed. And so uh, he's got this dried up, seized arm. The, the altar of, of, of the false god is broken and the ashes spill out. God is showing, just like he did with the plagues in Egypt, just like he has done as, as, he, as he brought the people into the land of Canaan through their conquest. God is showing his power over false gods. God is showing his glory and his seriousness. God is showing that, that these things are not the right solution. They are not the right focus. The last way that God confronts Jeroboam is that he, con he confronts Jeroboam and this false religion with grace. I want you to think about this. Did Jeroboam deserve to have his arm healed? No. The fact that God re, I guess, hydrated it, whatever happened, God healed his arm and he was able to draw it back to his body, that is a gracious, undeserved gift from God. I think it's also important to understand that 
when God supernaturally tumbled that altar over and the ashes spilled out, that also was God's grace. God was gracious in his breaking of the instrument of false worship. He took it away. He broke it down. That is God's love for his people. That is God's gracious action. This is where this passage, as I was studying it, began to really connect with me personally. And here's what I want to observe. As we make the bridge from what this passage means, we see how God is confronting the the lie, this false religion. And as we connect it to ourselves in this day and age, what, what is the connection? And right here, this fact that God graciously broke down the altar. This is where it connects with us. Think about this. In our world, at this moment, God is graciously breaking down altars. Our world right now is almost entirely a collection of broken down altars. Broken down idols. Allow me to explain. How is God graciously breaking altars for us? Well, first of all, let's talk talk about coronavirus. There's this mysterious virus around. We can't seem to get good information, solid information as to how it affects us, how it's transmitted, all these things. And what is it doing? It threatens our health. The only thing we can do is stay home to avoid it and hope for the best. And so... Our, our, our normal lives, our, our, our livelihood, our vitality is being threatened. We can't hope in that any longer. I spoke about this earlier. Our economy has seen better days. Now, even if the economy and how it's going isn't affecting you personally, Jesus has said, and it is true right now, there will always be poor among us. So even if it's not affecting you personally, there are many, many, many people who are without jobs, their businesses are closing, this is going to hurt them for a long time, and that will affect all of us. It should. So our, our bank accounts aren't as sure as they used to be. Let's talk about civil unrest. Think of it this way. The civil unrest that we are seeing on the news on a daily basis, it puts things like the existence of our justice system as we know it, uh, the possibility of our nation being unified, it puts those things into question. It puts those things into question. We don't know if they will exist ever or if they will ever exist like they have before in the future. And I hope you're sitting down because this is, it's not over. Uh, As if 2020 has been bad enough, I hate to remind you, we have a presidential election coming up this fall. We have a presidential election, and I'm going to say, I'm not a mathematician, but there's a 50 to 100% chance that that election is going to turn out in a way that you don't want it to. 50 to 100%. You can check my math on that. And to make it all worse, most of our restaurants that we love are still closed. Listen. This morning, what I hope is all those things unsettle you and you think, man, that's right. I can't hope in any of those things. I hope you're unsettled because this morning, what do we, we have an opportunity this morning. Church, we have an opportunity to, to make an evaluation. To make an evaluation. I started this sermon by asking the question, what is the world's biggest problem? The, the way we answer that question the diagnosis that we make, the evaluation that we make to to answer that question will determine what we look to for a solution. So let's revisit Jeroboam. Jeroboam said, 
my biggest problem is the fact that I might lose my power. I might lose the throne. What was God's answer to that? His answer was no, Jeroboam. Your biggest problem is your own disobedience. Your own disobedience. That's your biggest problem. It's the biggest threat to your life. What is sad, and I think it's important to mention here, is that Jeroboam never gained clarity. He never caught what God was throwing down. So Jeroboam goes through several other scenarios where he tries to go to God when he needs him, and then he, 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 he doesn't remain faithful. The prophet that comes to him dies in this very strange way because he disobeys God. But here's how things wrap up for Jeroboam. In 1 Kings 13, 33-34, it says this, After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. But what did he do? He made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priest of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. That's tragedy. That's tragedy. By misdiagnosing the problem, Jeroboam had misidentified the solution. And it was fatal to him. I want to say to us this morning, if we misdiagnose the problem, if we do that, church, we too, just like Jeroboam, will dip into false religion and idolatry. That's what happens. When you misdiagnose the problem, you misidentify the solution. Now, I don't believe what we would do what Jeroboam did, which is completely ditch our faith. It is unlikely that we would reject Jesus Christ outright and say that he is not part of the solution. What we do, church, what, what our sin is, is this thing called syncretism. Syncretism. Syncretism is this. We keep Jesus, but we add something to it. So what's the solution to the problem that we identify? It's Jesus plus this other thing. Jesus plus this, this thing over here. And so the solution that we, we arrive at is, is this plus something else. And we, we add the plus something else because we see Jesus as what? An insufficient solution to the problem that we have diagnosed. And so this morning, we started with Jeroboam. He had completely lost the plot. He had completely lost his way. He had completely misdiagnosed the problem. This morning, we, can, we, can ha we have an opportunity to, 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 ex to, um, to regain the plot, to, to regain, get back clarity for ourselves. And we can allow the truth of God to confront us this morning. So let me answer the question, what is the problem? What's the biggest problem in the world? It's the same thing that God says to Jeroboam. It's not his loss of power. It's his disobedience. For us, the biggest problem, for the world, the biggest problem is my personal sin. Your personal sin. Our personal sin, period, is the problem. It's the problem. And because 
church, I'm, I'm speaking to you, because as the church, as brothers and sisters of Christ, as children of God, we don't believe it. We don't accept that sin is our greatest problem on a day-to-day basis. What we do is we misidentify the solution. And what happens when we misidentify the solution is syncretism. We bring something else in to take up the, the slack that Jesus couldn't carry, that Jesus couldn't solve that problem. And so what I've done for the next uh, couple minutes here is I want to just run through a few what I think are common syncretisms that we fall into, church. And what I don't want you to do, if you're a nerd like me, you're going to want to write them all down. I don't want you to write them down. I want you to listen. And when one of them offends you a little bit or makes you feel panic or makes you angry, I want you to dig in there, okay? I want you to, to think, well, that's ransom, that's terrible. I want you to dig in on that moment because that is where you are trying to parry encounter God's truth speaking into your heart. So the first syncretism, a lot of people just turned off YouTube. So they're like, ah, not doing it. <laughs> uh, but here we are. First one, first syncretism I want to talk about, political syncretism. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller talks about that. And he's talking about this idea that when we misidentify the problem, we, we misidentify the solution. And he says, when we misidentify the problem, it it demonizes something that's not completely bad, and it makes an idol of something that cannot be ultimately good. And then he says, in political idolatry, we make a god out of having power. So what is the problem that is diagnosed in political syncretism? How do we get there? We look at the world and we think, we have to have the right people in political power to make this thing right. To change the world, we have to have the right people in power. And what is the solution then? If that's the problem that's diagnosed, what's the solution? We must then villainize the opposition in order to win. So we villainize political parties. We villainize things that aren't necessarily all bad in order to, to try and hang on to power. Quoting another PCA pastor, Scott Sauls, he's a pastor in Nashville. I'm going to paraphrase, uh, but he's talking uh, from his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, he says, we ought to have more in common with a Christian of a different political party than with a non-Christian of the same political party. You hear that? When we dip into political syncretism, we have a tendency to find more in common with non-Christians who share our political views than with Christians who might have different ideas on how things ought to go politically. That's political syncretism. We're saying Jesus plus political power will solve the problem. Let's keep moving. This another one's a little bit more of a broad category. has several uh, sub-syncretisms in it, but I call this one cultural syncretism. And I, I lump them all together because they have the same kind of formula. This, if you want to read more about this, the opening chapter of Jürgen Moltmann's Crucified God really gets into this in a really, really deep level. Um, but the idea here is that cultural syncretism happens when the problem that we diagnose is this, the church losing relevance with the world. We, we diagnose that is the problem. That's the problem. One second. This light is going to swing in to the camera shot. Going to move that back. One second. It's like a sail. All right. I'm back. I'm back. Cultural syncretism. Loss of relevance with 
the culture becomes the ultimate enemy. So what becomes a solution? Well, the church, if that is the ultimate bad, if that's our problem, we're going to lose relevance, what happens? The church says we must bend, maybe even break, to make room for the subjective morality of our society. The church must bend and break. It must, it's kind of departing from orthodoxy in order to be relevant with the world. A couple sub-syncretisms, I think, that help make this clear. One I call happiness syncretism. That is, it makes the ultimate enemy discomfort. We don't want anyone out there feeling uncomfortable. We don't want anyone feeling like they are rejected or, or they don't belong. So what do we do? We try to provide comfort by any means. That's the diagnosis of a problem and the misdiagnosis of a solution. Another version of this syncretism is intellectual syncretism. So what is the danger there? What's the problem? We diagnose the problem as being seen as unintelligent. So what do we do? What must we do? What's the solution to that? We selectively scrap parts of the Word of God in order to make room for things that the world accepts as true in order to seem more valid to them. It's syncretism. It's a misdiagnosis and a misidentification. A couple more. Having fun yet? <laughs> Next one I call moral syncretism. Moral syncretism. What this is, the problem in moral syncretism is that the biggest danger you can face is the loss of personal freedom. Per loss of personal freedom is the enemy. So what is the solution? You will justify doing whatever you want to do by whatever means possible. You aren't in charge of me. I have freedom in Christ. I can do that or do this or do whatever simply because I want to. And no one can, can rule over me. On the other end of that spectrum, you have what I call tradition syncretism. This one might be a little harder to swallow. Tradition syncretism is Jesus plus this religious practice or that religious practice. So, what is the, what's the problem that is diagnosed in tradition syncretism? Uh, the problem is, okay, we don't want to become too culturally relevant because if we become too culturally relevant, we lose orthodoxy, which is true. We just saw that. But this one takes it to the other end, and what does it do? And, and this, this really can play out in many ways, but here's one that's very common. One way that tradition syncretism plays out is what do we do? We immortalize a very particular style of worship from a very specific time period, and we tell everyone that that way of worshiping is the only right kind of worship. You're not worshiping unless you do that thing. We need Jesus plus this style. This type of song. This feel of worship. It's what we say. It's what we do. And what have we done in that moment? We have created our own personal religion that suits who? Ourselves. It suits me. Syncretism. It's false religion. Now we could go on. I think that's enough for now. Because we have to get to the solution here. What... What do we do? How do we find our way back? Allow me to be personal for a moment. Allow your pastor to just be honest. Um, as someone who attempts at least to give counsel on a regular basis, I, I have, um, I believe it's a must that I receive counsel. And so what I have done in my life is I've made a habit of, uh, of subjecting myself 
to the process of dip, digging up my sinful junk under the, uh, the caring, watchful eye of a solid Christian counselor. That's what I do. I do it on a regular basis. And uh, when I first moved to Columbia, I made an effort to find one, and I found a great one that we still meet on a regular basis. And one of the first meetings we had together, he asked me this question. He said, Ransom, why are you doing this? And he gave me options. He said, are you doing this because you want to be a man of God? Or are you here because you want people to see you as a good pastor? And this is one of those questions for me that, that hits my heart like a ton of bricks. It hurts because I know the answer. I know the answer. I know the answer that I want to be the answer, and I know the real answer. The answer is yes. I mean, for both of those reasons. I love being a pastor. I love it. I love being the pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. I love it. It's my heart. It's my call. I know I'm supposed to be here. This, this place is my heart. It's my spiritual family. And so the, the pain that I feel from the answer to that question is because I see my personal wretched, stinking sinfulness creeping into that thing and trying to make it its own. It opens a wound. It opens a wound and it hurts. I hate it. I hate that reality. I, that question, I hate that question, but it's a good question. Why? Because that question pulls out a hard truth. God is confronting me with the truth. In that question, the truth is this. It's not about the church complying to what I want. It's not about other people seeing it the way I see it. It's not about my agenda. The problem with everything that I face is my sin. My sin. So, this hard truth allows me to do two things. It allows me to first evaluate accurately the problem. I can see what the problem actually is. And because I can see what the problem actually is, I can, on a regular basis, reorient myself in a trajectory that, toward the real solution, which is a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the problem is my sin, I can handle it in a way that helps me do this thing because I want to be a man of God. It makes it less about being seen as a good pastor. So as I know and love Christ more, as I trust Him more, I begin to let go of my opinion and my desires when they don't match up with what He wants. And so what that question, that truth has allowed me to do is to, to cooperate with God's confrontation with me. God will not allow you to move through this life without Him confronting you on your idolatry, just like with Jeroboam. Oh, altar, altar. Let me tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to break and spill out your ashes. The same thing he's done to me through, through, through that process of counseling, which I recommend for everybody, by the way. And it's the same thing he's doing this morning for you. God is confronting you in your idolatry. God is saying, I will not stand by and let you worship this false religion. I'm going to confront you. And he's going to confront you with, first, the truth. The truth of his word. God gives us this Word, the Scriptures. It has everything He wants us to know about Him in it. And on top of that, beyond that, He sent Jesus Christ in the flesh, the very Word of God, to come to this earth to reveal His heart for His people. 
God confronts you with truth. He's given you the truth to confront. You cannot identify your idols. You cannot identify your syncretism without the Word of God. You can't do it. And God has lovingly given you that truth. He's confronting you with it. God has also confronted us with signs. What is the sign? The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, God gave us a sign. Here is the problem. Here is the problem. Sin. And God is so serious about sin being the problem that He died for it. And not only that, He didn't just take the punishment, He rose in victory over it. He has broken the power of sin and death. Praise the Lord. That's our sign. That's a historical event. That's our sign for what God has diagnosed as the problem and given us as a solution. And lastly, thankfully, God gives us grace. He confronts us in grace. Right now, this weird time in our lives, guess what part of it is? God confronting us in grace by breaking down altars that we've worshipped at for a long time. Comfort, cultural syncretism, political syncretism. He's giving us a microscope to show us what, where we have gone wrong. It's gracious of him to do that. It's a God who is attentive to you. Do you realize that? He's not punishing you or rubbing your face in it. He's saying, look, I want to show you. Not only that, he forgives our syncretism. He doesn't reject us for our false religion. Rather, he took the punishment for it. He stood before God and took the punishment as if he had worshipped the things we worship instead of him. And what does he give us in return? His forgiveness, his righteousness, the Holy Spirit to empower us. And So this morning, the question is this. There's two of them. Will you accept the real problem? Will you accept it? What is it? My sin, your sin, our sin, our personal sin is the problem. Not everybody else's sin. Your sin. And will you identify the only real solution, which is a growing relationship with Jesus Christ in faith? That's the solution. Obedience to God. And he has said, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I want to speak to those of you who don't identify as someone who has confessed their faith in Jesus Christ. I'm thankful you're still listening. This is a tough message for the church. I hope you've heard me say this morning that the Scriptures say the church isn't perfect. We make mistakes all the time, every day. We, we, we worship wrong things, which makes us have bizarre opinions that don't match up with one another. I hope you heard me say that. And what I want to say to you this morning, I want to say to you, it may be hard because it's God confronting you, but I want to say it as one who is being confronted. I want to say that uh, just like Jeroboam, what did he do here? He had created with his own hands like a craft project, this false religion, and then he served it. And the Bible wants you to know that that's, that's ridiculous to serve something you have created, a false religion. And what I want you to hear this morning, whether that thing that you look to as the solution for whatever you identify as the problem, whether it's political ideology or acceptance or happiness, it is no, nothing more than an empty false religion. It's an empty false religion. It's something you have fashioned, and now you serve it as if it has fashioned you, as if it can solve the problem. And what I want you to hear this morning is that 
God calls you to turn away from that silly lie and to turn towards the real truth that, that all of us as human beings, we have a problem. That problem is our sin, our personal sin. We were born into it. And the real solution is nothing but the blood of Jesus. And if you, this morning, declare faith in that, you will be saved. So for all of us, here's the summary. The world's greatest problem is our own personal sin. And the only solution is the salvation offered to us in Jesus Christ alone. Let me pray for us. Lord, I am not immune to this sermon. I am not a person that is free from syncretism or free from false worship. I, every day, misidentify the problem. I misdiagnose. And so because of that, I misidentify uh, the solution. And so I end up with this Jesus plus something else. Rid me of that, Lord. Rid me of that. How much more joyous our lives would be, how more full our lives would be, how more confident we would feel if we simply diagnosed the problem as my sin and so we pursued you and the gracious sanctification that you have offered to us. Anxiety would go away. Worry would pass. We would have ample relationships. Some where people would, would reject us, but we would be content in the sovereignty and the control of God over the human heart. Lord, I pray that for my church. May we not be a syncretistic church. May we be a single-minded, focused church on the problem and the solution. The problem is brokenness. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus, His blood, and His resurrection. I pray that for us. Be with us in these dark times. Be with us in these confusing times. Help us, Lord, to be disciples as we navigate this deep, dark, broken world. We love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.